Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Jocelyn Strand today. Um, if her name rings a bell, at least from my platform, she uh, published a, book, uh, a blog on the oral microbiome for us recently, and it was one of our top 2019 blogs. And so we, we sent that out in our annual download of top content in December. So you might, you might be familiar with that. If not, we'll actually link to it on our show notes because it's a, it's a really terrific blog. Um, she's a naturopathic physician like myself. She graduated from Bastyr in 2005, actually my same year I graduated with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. Following her graduation, she established her practice in Seattle. Uh, she also worked at an integrated pharmacy, um, and she focused in uh, gastrointestinal health while there. Uh, she returned to Minnesota, her home state, with the vision of increasing the availability, affordability, and awareness of naturopathic medicine there, and opened up a practice at uh, Lake Superior called Lake Superior Natural Medicine. Uh, again, she continued to specialize in GI systems disorders, Lyme disease, and autoimmune conditions, uh, as well as acting as a primary care provider. Uh, in 2019, she became the director of clinical education for biobotanical research uh, and continues to inspire others through research and lecturing around the world. We've actually were dialoguing about a lecture she just gave in the beautiful state of Hawaii on uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, background pathophysiology, some really new thoughts on the pathophysiology. Uh, and I said, listen, we need to stop and get this on uh, the recording because it's all very interesting. So Dr. Strand, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, and we've, we appreciate, we're, we're appreciating getting to know you and getting to know uh, the high caliber work that you're doing. Um, all right, so you, we were talking about Pimentel, and then we were, and, and his uh, investigations in SIBO, he will actually be on this year. He's scheduled, we, we, I don't know when we'll re release him, but I think I'm going to, I'll be podcasting with him next month, so it'll be fine. I can't wait follow to up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, ping me questions. Um, and if I get, you know, if, if anybody's listening to this, you can, you, you're welcome to ping me questions for him. Uh, so let's just start from the beginning. Talk to me about the current definitions of SIBO. Okay. Well, well, SIBO, I think it's still such an evolving diagnosis and understanding the underlying physiology of it that there are a number of different sort of thoughts on, on what it actually is. Um, so the, the go, going definition is if there are 10 to the 5 uh, microorganisms per milliliter of gastric fluid or, or stool, um, and and that's that was for for a while that was the the definition. Uh, I just think it's really interesting because I like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth kind of defines itself, right? Like we have a lot of microorganisms in the gut, but what we're finding is that the physiology indicates that it's probably not where it starts. There's there are other things that that start that result in that, and so I, I think it's really mm -hmm. fascinating. That and we'll get into that. We'll talk about some of that hopefully today. Mm -hmm. um, but the, so that's one definition. Dr. Pimentel uh, was talking about the reimagined study in a podcast that I listened to recently. And he talked about how a lot of the microorganisms are embedded in the mucus and that they're difficult to, to sample or extract. Yes. So when you do take, when you do take um, a sample, that if you only get 10 to the third, 
that um, that that's not considered SIBO, but what his argument is that if you actually sample it correctly and extract the microorganisms from, from the mucus, you would see 10 to the fifth. And it, it's really interesting because there's a Nature article published, um, I think it was in the, about almost a year ago now, um, that talked about dysbiosis, or no, it, well, I'm not sure when it was published, but that it was just that SIBO is dysbiosis rather than overgrowth. Um, and Dr. Pimentel's argument is uh, we weren't doing a full sampling of the mm. of it without the without the mucus layer mm. being sampled as well. Um, and so there is, as you can see, a lot up in the air. Is it ten to the fifth? Is it ten to the third? Is it dysbiosis? Um, and and ultimately, as practitioners or clinicians, I think what we are most concerned with is is how do we 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 get a general idea of what it is? How do we treat it? How do we help the patient feel better and sustain healing? Um, so somewhere in there, you need to come to as a clinician some understanding of what you decide is, is the most, makes the most sense. Um, and, and I, um, in my practice, I really tend to just call it dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're understanding more as the migrating motor complex is compromised that it does indeed, we do get overgrowth uh, of the microbiome and, or, or uh, the um, bacteria in the small intestine. Or, so that is playing a role in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, let me just kind of, let me see if I can summarize what you're saying. So it's a continuum. It seems to me like it's a continuum. I mean, there could be sampling issues, but it seems like there's a range of, of, um, of, of uh, uh, in overgrowth if you, or imbalance. So, so you could have 10 to, you could be within normal limits on a specimen, on a breath test, but then if you actually went in there and, and specimented and took a sample of the mucus layer, you would actually find that they've got, you know, plenty of overgrowth. So there's, so there's that, right? So you could have a normal breath test, but you could still go in and sample the mucosa and find that they're very elevated. So to me, that seems to, and so, so you can couch it as being overgrowth or you can couch it as dysbiosis. It, it, I think we're, exactly. in a way, it sounds like we're kind of splitting hairs there, right? I would say, it, it seems, so, so the question would be, if you do a breath test and it comes back within normal limits, if your patient's symptomatic, you they've got they've got a bacterial imbalance right or they've got right. a microbial imbalance right and right that, it doesn't mean that we don't treat right if they if yeah. it comes back negative i think it's exactly i was having this conversation with nan sudak who's a colleague of mine here uh, and and she said the same thing well if i do the breath test and it comes back negative i, I still treat the patient right. and and that's true and I, I it's exactly what you're saying is that it is it's probably a combination of overgrowth and dysbiosis and some damage yeah. to the lining of the gastrointestinal tract that's resulting in, in the in the emptying not being efficient of the right. gut. It's kind of extraordinary. It's like we've come full circle, haven't we? You know, exactly. back when we were in school, it was all dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe different if we were doing stool testing, there might be a little different angle or if symptoms were different, you know, symptoms are different from person to person, but we were you know, we labeled it all as dysbiosis. It's interesting that we're actually returning to that. And Sir N. Pimentel himself, you know, says if you see methane, um, really almost any amount of methane, that that can be significant, correct? Yes, yeah, that's right. Because, yeah, and so methane would be more the uh, the SIBO that's involved with constipation, the methane-producing yes. microorganisms, right? And uh, and they they exist by consuming hydrogen and so he, what he i think what his his argument is that if you see if you see any methane then you have the, the, the sort of the 
pathogenic level of Archaeobacter or the, the methane forming. And, and then you can't trust the hydrogen breath test because they'll, they'll they're eating, up, they're consuming the hydrogen. <laughs> right, right. They're using it as their substrate. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Wow. That's a, that's a pearl. So did you catch that folks? Any level of methane is likely problematic in Pimentel's view and it can render the hydrogen test uh, useless because they're using the hydrogen, the methane produces the archaea are using the hydrogen as the substrate. That's pretty interesting. There's, um, so much, there's so much snow and there's so much research. And, and then in light of new information, then you can go back in the research and try to make sense of, and, and there are a lot of clinicians that are doing that, that go back and, you know, maybe research that's 15 years old has a different, has a different um, meaning now than it did when they first did it, now that we have a better, deeper understanding of what's going on in the gastrointestinal tract. And that, that's what I find fun because I'm a geek. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely throw some, throw some of those pearls out as we move. Let me just ask you this, though, in, you know, with, with this interesting introduction, I still, I, we use the breath test in practice all of the time. And I think it's useful with the caveats, like we're always, we're always working on, on staying relatively current so that we can interpret it, obviously, in the context of the clinical presentation. But, you know, one of our physicians here, um, who really follows Pimentel, stated recently that methanobrevibacter on a stool test might actually suggest, you know, methane SIBO. What do you think about that? So, so other end of the, other end of the gastrointestinal tract. Yeah. What do you think? Um, so will you say it again? So the methanobrevibacter positive on a breath test. Which, on a stool test. On a oh, stool, on a stool test. test. Yeah. Okay. That a certain amount could be suggestive of methane SIBO. Have, have you come across that at all? I don't, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know. I, I don't feel as though I have enough information to speak. Okay. Okay. On that. <laughs> okay. Not um, a problem. Not so a problem. I'd love to give you a brilliant response, <laughs> but no, I don't know enough about it. So if, if it, if it, if it crosses your desk, which, <laughs> you know, it could now that we've had the conversation and it's brought to to your consciousness, just just ping me on it, and we'll I've, pop it I've on our show notes thoughts. if you have any if you if you have any thoughts on it. Okay, um, I'll look into it. That's fascinating. So, how about yeah? So, so I guess my question. Well, let me do this since you're putting a lot of attention and, and you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. You know, beyond methano methanobacter, you know, is this, could a stool test be useful? You know, for diagnosing SIBO. And I'm asking you that to comment on later on if you feel like pinging me on it or if you have any thoughts on it now, go ahead, jump in. Okay. Okay. Well, a, a couple of things. I want to back up just a little bit to something you said, which just to um, talk about, uh, go back to that reimagined study uh, mm -hmm. where Dr. Pimentel was able to, to see that 10 to the third microorganisms is more indicative rather than 10 to the fifth of SIBO. Um, and he, in that study, he said that they sampled... So gastric juice, they sampled, um, they did genetic sequencing, they did, um, they did culture, and they did the breath test. And what they found was that the lact lactulose breath test, 90 minutes after the consumption of the lactulose, was as effective as combining all of the other, uh, I mean, not, not quite as effective, but very, very close to as effective at identifying it, if, if I understood his podcast correctly, uh, which is really interesting because, again, you talked about sort of coming back to, you know, we go, we go back and forth about the lactulose breath test, whether or not it's the sensitivity, the specificity, all of that. Um, and, and he found that it was really helpful for identification of SIBO, um, the hydrogen production. Um, Good. 
the hydrogen producing bugs in SIBO. At um, 90 so minutes. So collect it appropriately. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's vital is that if you, if you lose that window of time, then it's the, the results are not helpful. Let me, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's it. That's so I just thought that was really um, important. And then I, I think for testing in general, so stool testing, uh, I think can be very useful as a clinician to identify pathogens. Uh, but I don't think in terms, as far as I know right now, in terms of SIBO diagnosis, it's not, it's not a tool that's being considered as yep. much as the, the lactulose breath test is. Um, and then Dr. Pimentel is talking about um, antibodies against vinculin and CDTB. And so those are two potential um, testings, testing um, techniques that we can use in, instead for diagnosis. Got it. Yep. Okay. Makes sense. And thanks for clarifying that. We will incidentally link to the reimagined study on our show notes. Okay. Um, what about hydrogen sulfide? How do we figure that one out? Is that, that's pretty much just a clinical diagnosis at this point, right? It, it is a clinical diagnosis and, it, and it, mostly it's associated again with that constipation aspect of that, at least this is my understanding of it currently, is the hydrogen sulfide um, connected with the, uh, with the methane producing organisms. And please correct me if I'm wrong because I just started reading about it and I'm, I'm just starting to learn more about the hydrogen sulfide it's amazing how when you're out talking to other clinicians, how people hand me information all the time. And what about this one? And how about this one? But that one is, is relatively new to me. So again, it's not one of the, one of the areas that I feel like I have a lot of expertise. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you tussling with it. Well, let's move. Let's, I want to move into your area of expertise because you've been sharing it with me beforehand and it's, it's really helpful for us. Um, and I appreciate you being very grounded in, um, you know, what you're doing in the clinic. So let's talk about other people, CIFO, which I'd like you to define. That's been on people's radar. Okay. There's a difference between SIBO and CIFO. And, you know, there's a handful, there's a variety of microbial cul culprits. So just let's start by defining and let's start by, you know, talk to me about the, the bugs. Involved. Okay. So, so SIBO um, is bacterial overgrowth and CIFO is a fungal overgrowth in the gastrointestinal tract. And, and ultimately what CIFO comes down to is candida albicans typically, or one of the candida species. And um, what I think is, is really interesting is that, so they're, they're treated very differently from a pharmaceutical approach. And I was listening to, again, a podcast by Dr. Satish Rao, and, <clears throat> and he talked about the, the, what he said is, I always treat for SIBO first because I'm going to cause SIFO when I treat for SIBO, um, which means the rifaximin, which is he's typically using, results in a fungal overgrowth in the gut as you wipe out all of the, um, the commensal microorganisms that are competing. And I think that's really interesting. And I think one of the things that I love about, about Biocidin and, the, and their product line is that you're, you're working both of those. You're treating or... Um, you're using something broad spectrum, antimicrobial, that's supportive and selective antipathogen. And so, and I love that about natural therapeutics in general is that we can really support the broad spectrum and support healthy physiology rather than, than a unilateral wipeout. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, that's CFO is, um, I'm trying to pull up some of my 
um, information here, but CIFO is typically candida. SIBO, the most common organisms are um, Pseudomonas, Campylobacter. Now, it depends on who you talk to because Dr. Pimentel, part of his, um, part of his paradigm is that uh, SIBO is, is caught, and IBSD caused by, most often by um, a food poisoning, an initial food poisoning event. Mm -hmm. And so that means Campylobacter, which is, causes one third of all acute food poisoning would be one of the microorganisms that we have to really pay attention to. Um, but other microorganisms are Pseudomonas, E. coli, um, Staph species, Klebsiella, Strep species, um, so all of those microorganisms and many of those um, have shown sensitivity to botanicals, including, including biocidin. Nice. Um, so that's, that's exciting. You know, the fun thing about getting to do sort of delve more deeply into the research with this company has been that I've been able to um, look at, at research and, and read deep, more deeply about the product line and not just the biocidin, but the olivirex, both of them have really good research in vitro um, with sensitivity on a lot of these microorganisms. So yeah, that's right. They have. And you know what we've podcasted, I've podcasted over the years with your founder um, and she just does a great job sort of corralling together all the various research projects that are happening around the world, you know, in vitro and some, and some clinical content. Um, and so we'll link to those in the show notes. We'll pull up, we'll pull up all the content from Biobotanical so that people can okay. access it pretty readily. And it's always, it's always really pretty popular stuff. If, if you want to go and learn um, some of what Jocelyn's talking about, can I just ask you, I want to just, I, I meant to ask you this earlier, but um, what about, you know, what about dietary change and diet actually change, you know, so if somebody jumps on a FODMAP, um, a low FODMAP diet, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy around to do it or not to do it during active treatment. And do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I do. And a, a couple of things that the first is that uh, those, those diets, you know, by a lot of people are considered not sustainable for a long, long term. Um, and I think, you know, I think we, we all feel that you need a, you need a broad um, number of foods that you're eating in order to get just basic nutrients, right? Like, so what's in the food, but then when you do the FODMAP diet, you're also taking out a lot of prebiotics that are being yes. utilized by the microorganisms in the colon to produce all the short chain fatty acids and other nutrients, CoQ10 and B12. And there are all these nutrients that you can get deficient in if you take those foods out for an extended period of time. Um, and you're not treating, you're not actually affecting any kind of lasting treatment typically with a diet like that. You may be suppressing their growth for the short term, but it doesn't result in necessarily in a, in a lasting effect. Um, so, so are they hanging out in the, in the mucus layer, just waiting for? To, to some, repopulate? I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's any actual, you, you may suppress their growth, but there's no bactericidal effect to that diet. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. So once you, once you fall off the FODMAP diet, you, you'll just move back into having symptoms. Right, exactly. And that's where I think an antimicrobial of some sort comes in uh, and, and can, first of all, break up biofilms, right? So that they can't hang out as easily in that mucus layer um, and that the antimicrobials then can have access to the microorganisms, but also have this killing effect, bactericidal effect rather than um, just, and restorative, right? So yeah. that's part of it. And, and we'll, we can talk about that too, but, but bringing in some spore-forming microorganisms to help repopulate with the beneficials while we're working on suppressing the growth of the, of the pathogen load. So 
So where do you where do you come down on the on the controversy of to to lower FODMAPs or not? Um, well, I will. What I typically do in my practice, or did in my practice, was to was to have an anti-inflammatory diet. I didn't prescribe FODMAP. I I always use biocidin and the olivirex to treat. And in the study that we did, there was no diet change, and 100% of the people had improvement or resolution of their symptoms. Geez, that's amazing. How many people were in the study? Um, it was eight people. Wow. And this was at your clinic. No, this was done at Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine by one of the students there when oh, that's she was doing great. her um, research. Is it, and, and can we link to that? Did, was it published? It, it is not published, no. And I, I'll see what I can find, though. I might be able to get something to you. Um, I mean, we do have data collected on it. And a couple, so there are a handful of the symptoms that 100% of the people had resolution on. One was um, diarrhea, 100% resolution, and um, skin conditions, which, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me that you might see that happen, but on hundred percent of the people that had it, I, I just thought that was amazing. Um, you know, fascinating. And it's, it's exciting to watch as a clinician. And it's why I said to you what I did earlier, which is I don't have a whole lot of experience in testing because I used biocidin in my practice as a diagnostic tool. It's so broad acting that what yeah. I found myself doing was ordering stool testing. And then if it was candida, I would, use biocidin. And if it was E. coli, I would use biocidin. If it was C. diff, I'd use biocidin. So then I thought, well, why, why am I spending $400 on, you know, I live in a, a fairly economically depressed area to, to um, diagnose something if the treatment doesn't change. So right. I, instead I was using it as a diagnostic tool. So then you have one bottle of biocidin that helps me understand if people feel better than, um, than I, I, then I know that dysbiosis or SIBO is a, problem for that patient. And then we just treat uh, empirically yeah. based on that. And so that was how I handled it. It doesn't mean that there's no use in testing. It's just what I did in my practice. Right. Uh, and so that's why you're, you're hearing me sort of fumble around with testing. It's, it's all um, st sort of standard in the industry, what I know, rather than what I had in my clinical practice. And it, it's, um, you know, I, I just think it's a very useful way. And I'll order, I would order testing for anybody who wanted to see it. And, and if I had a fragile or a pediatric patient, something like that, I would order testing to make sure that we're not doing an unnecessary therapeutic. Right. Uh, but for a lot of people, it would save them $400 just to, just to treat. And they feel better right away. Instead yeah, of, that's great. <laughs> instead of waiting, you know, to, to treat. So. so we can test. We don't have to test. Uh, Dr. Strand was using Oliverix and biocidin as a diagnostic. That's awesome. And she was not prescribing a FODMAP. You're actually prescribing a standard anti-inflammatory diet. That's just, it's so interesting. I mean, I have to say in clinical practice, I do use a FODMAP, uh, low FODMAP diet, very short term. And then uh, we challenge with the FODMAPs pretty much ASAP because in my experience, people don't react to all of them. Uh, sure. And then we'll expand and then we'll treat a little more and expand. That's what I've been doing. But, you know, Stacey Cantor Atkins in practice, she's no longer prescribing the FODMAP for the reasons that you described. I think for me, I just end up feeling a little, uh, you know, I just, I, I want people to actually have symptom release post haste. And so I, I just lean on that. I suppose if somebody wasn't feeling so lousy, I might skip a low FODMAP, but it can bring almost immediate relief. Um, sure. But, but listen, everybody's going to want to know how you were prescribing or how you are prescribing biocidin and oliverics for, you know, for your dysbiosis slash 
SIBO or CFO patients? Sure, sure. So, so um, I can talk about how I did it, and then I can talk about the study as well. Yes. Um, so, so my in my practice, I always do BID dosing instead of TID uh, because I feel like too many times people lose their last uh, their yes. last dose, Amen. and we lose our <laughs> we lose our our um, efficacy. efficacy. Yep. So I would take the the standard dose of thirty drops a day, and instead of doing um, instead of doing 10 drops TID, I did 15 drops BID. Um, I will work up slowly to that. A lot of the people that we're working with at these complex GI patients will be riddled with bio, uh, biofilms as well. And one of the main activities of biocidin is its ability to disrupt biofilms um, through a number of different mechanisms, actually through, through every mechanism that biofilms use to, to um, both to generate themselves and to sustain themselves, biocidin contains ingredients that have been shown to, to disable them. And we've actually got research on- I know you do. We talked about it. Yes. Okay. We'll link, we'll link to it. It's so interesting, the work that you've done on biofilm. <laughs> it's I mean, so interesting. I just, I appreciate having not just the botanicals, but like just the potency of the, you know, the, 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 the volatile um, constituents. Just, it's exactly. just cool that we're- that, 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 you're, that you guys are looking at it. It almost feels magical a lot of the time when, when I use it. And I can talk about a, a couple of case studies too um, with, with biocidin. Well, actually, why don't I... You yeah, ask, keep, going, I keep going on how you dose up. Okay, what they so, did in the study. so work up, working, working up slowly because when you're breaking open biofilms, you're not just looking at microorganisms. We're looking at potentially microorganisms that the body wasn't currently dealing with already because they're holed up behind biofilms. We're also looking at heavy metals, LPS, um, oxalates. All of those, those metabolites are housed within biofilms. So if you have someone that has a lot of biofilms, you know, really what was a really good clinical pearl for me from Rachel directly was uh, if someone reacts to the biocidin, most of the, almost all of the time, they're actually reacting to the activity of the biocidin, not the biocidin itself. Uh, and when, what's, what can be confusing as a clinician is if someone comes in with SIBO symptoms or gas and, say gas and bloating, um, diarrhea, and you start treating them with biocidin and they get anxiety, and you think, well, they're reacting to the biocidin, and it's, an, it's a natural thing to think, but the reality is oftentimes they're reacting to this disruption of the biofilm and what's the metabolites that are behind it. Yeah. And so using a binding agent. So in this, in this line, it's the GI detox, but that is really important aspect to um, compliance with a patient as you're working up on the biocidin. So dosing twice a day. And then I use the bio, the GI detox at night because you have to take it at least an hour away from everything, but you can also use it as needed um, if people are experiencing die off to help prevent that. Um, that's the, that's those symptoms. And I would say the more complex your patient is, the more likely they are to have, to have a reaction, um, a die off reaction as they're, as they're working up on, on the biocidin. So once you get to that sort of 10 drops twice a day, you're, you're probably beyond that. It, it really seems to be, at least in my clinical experience, it was right around like 15 drops a day, somewhere in 10 to 15 drops a day where people were starting to get the sort of um, you know, kind of flu-like symptoms is, is what I saw as typical. Occasionally, they might get anxiety or irritability, um, you know, fatigue, and just generally feeling terrible. <laughs> right. so, so using, using the binding agent then at that time. So that's, that's just the biocidin and the olivirex, two capsules twice a day. Two I capsules twice a day. Add in. Okay. Yeah. And you do that with the biocidin or away from? 
uh, at the same time as the biocidin. Okay, and the binding agent agent you're recommending at night, and how do you dose that? Uh, just two capsules at okay. bedtime, and okay. making sure they aren't taking like a you know a sleep pharmaceutical for sleep or or anything else at that time because it will bind that as well. Okay, and if they are, then you would prescribe it at a different time during the day. Exactly. So just so long as it's an hour away from anything else, you can okay. find the spot that's that's easiest for the patient. I, I tend to like the evening because most people have an empty stomach then. And they also, um, we, we do a lot of our detox overnight. And so it makes sense to me that we would, that we would bind, try to bind toxins as well. So, um, yeah, you know, it's so fascinating. It's a nice illustration that you've given of the die-off reaction and basically the breakdown of the biofilm uh, mucus, mucus layer and, you know, liberating all of those myriad compounds, organic acids and LPS and, you know, just the metals, et cetera, et cetera, into circulation. And that's what's prompting it. From that, I want, what's, what's the thinking on, you know, some of the underlying pathophysiology of SIBO and CIFO? You know, what are the causes? Okay. So and why, I, I, and, and the other thing is like, why does pretty much everyone walking through our door have it these days? What, yeah. Why is it so common, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, and, and I, I tend to listen to the, the experts in the field. And then I also love to just sort of think about from a clinician's perspective, why, like what you just said, why do so many people have it? Um, so we could start with Pimentel. Um, I, it was totally like mind blowing to me the first time I listened to his podcast, which was last fall sometime, um, September or October, where I, I listened to him talking, uh, about, SIBO frame or SIBO framed as an autoimmune and IBSD. He was kind of, it's actually IBSD he's talking about, but IBSD, 50 to 65% of IBSD people also are SIBO patients. And so the two of them can't be used exactly interchangeably, but they're, they're pretty similar pretty in terms of the physiology, right? So, so what, what he found is that uh, he found elevated antibodies against two different things. So one is CDTB, which is the cytolethal distending toxin B. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's released by gram-negative bacteria. And his theory is that uh, when you get an acute infection, say from Campylobacter, Shigella, something like that, that it causes this huge release of CDTB. And then our body creates antibodies against it and it looks very similar structurally to vinculin, which is a cytoskeletal protein in the, uh, in the nerve cells and the lining of the gastrointestinal tract, and that we start to develop antibodies against it, then it damages the nerve tissue, and that affects the ability of the cleaning wave in the gut to be effective, um, which is a result of the mi migrating motor complex. And so then we can't move those microorganisms out of the gastrointestinal tract, out of the small intestine, excuse me, into the colon, and we get this sort of stasis of, um, of microorganisms in the gut. So that's, that's one. And it, and it really frames, it frames SIBO as a, an auto, autoimmune condition or IBS as an autoimmune condition, uh, which was a really different way to think about it to me. You know, here, here I'm thinking, make sure and evaluate food sensitivities, make sure and uh, evaluate uh, the microbiome and dysbiosis and make sure they have good mechanical function with hydrochloric acid. And, you know, so just basically thinking right inside the gut without, for me, I wasn't, maybe I was thinking LPS and inflammation in general, but I always, right. you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't connecting the immune system in terms of autoimmunity, 
with as a potential role. Um, so it's something for us to, for sure to pay attention to because if we're having difficulty treating, if we're not paying attention to that, the potential autoimmune aspect of it, then we won't be able to get the migrating motor complex working as well and you, you won't be able to sustain healing. Um, okay, well, let me just ask you before you jump ahead, I just don't wanna make sure you remember where you stopped. <laughs> <laughs> take, a, take a note because okay. it's really important stuff but i just want to ask you what what do you recommend like how are you turning it around when you when you do see the you know percentage of the population that's positive with these autoantibodies when it does move into autoimmune territory yeah it's a really it's a really interesting question and and you know when i when i was speaking last week i thought well we we are good at i think as a group we're we're really naturopathic physicians or functional medicine practitioners are good at supporting immune system function. And so yeah. how, how do we, how do we, you know, anti-inflammatories and, you know, um, I mean, I think I would use that category, but for, for me, I've been treating SIBO empirically for years. And so I, I know how I treat it, right. It's with, it's with the BBR products, additional um, GI support, of course, you know, with wherever, wherever they need additional, each person as an individual where they need that additional support. But biocidin, one of its activities is immune modulation. So I think this is where we're seeing this sometimes the need to use the product for a longer period of time. So six to 12 months, rather than doing, doing a treatment that's really, we think of sort of in the paradigm of antimicrobials, we should be able to eradicate or, uh, suppress the growth of the pathogens and see a pretty significant difference in eight weeks. But if you're talking about immune function, then we may need something that lowers that gram negative bacteria load. So here's the, here's the way that I've been thinking about it. Um, because only if there's only a certain percentage of the population that's had an acute food poisoning event, but there are more people than that, that have SIBO, IBSD. So there's there's a section of that population yeah. that we're missing. So what's going? Who are those people? And that's what I was trying to think about. And well, if yeah. all gram-negative bacteria are releasing CDTB, then I think we're perpetuating an autoimmune condition if we leave dysbiosis, even if SIBO has been treated. So this is just the way I'm thinking about it right now. Is that if we can lower uh, by using a lower sort of maintenance dose of antimicrobials, lower that and take the load off of the immune system so that it's not being constantly barraged with that CDTB and the cross-reactivity, that maybe we can relieve that at, over time and allow the, the healing of the, of the nerve, the nervous cells and the nervous right, cells. Right, right. So, so, yeah, so basically what you're saying is for, for full eradication, you're recommending the oliverics and the um, biocidin for six to 12 months, which is a lot longer. And it's, and, and I'm guessing because you're outlining your protocol here that you're not feeling like you need to rotate through other products. You know, um, like I, I don't rotate through other products, but I will say a couple things. One is that some people don't need it for that long. Some people, and, and this is one of the things that Dr. Pimentel said, or Pimentel said as well, is that people who are highly elevated are much more resistant to ther to, um, to the therapeutics. Like they, they relapse with uh, um, rifaximin therapy. So I think what you're really looking at is how, how bad is it, right? How sick are they? And if you just take away that irritating factor for a short time, is, is their immune system healthy enough to get itself righted around so that they don't need it long-term? But I think if we're aware of the fact that there's an autoimmune component to it, then we can we can prepare ourselves and the patient for the potential that this may take a while to treat. Yeah, 
important. Um, so that's, that's kind of how, how I was thinking about, about it rather than, oh, 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 and then also to speak to whether we rotate the ability of biocide to disrupt biofilms really, um, alleviates the need to, to rotate. And the other thing that biocidin does is disrupt the efflux pump. Um, and that is one of the mechanisms for antibiotic and for antimicrobial resistance. So if you disrupt, the efflux pump is um, on the cell surface of the, of the microorganisms inside a biofilm. We actually have them on our, in our cells too. But what our, what our body, uh, what, those, what that efflux pump does is take something that's threatening and push it back outside the cell. And so if it starts to detect that an antibiotic is dangerous, it will start to push it out. And that's one of the mechanisms for antibiotic resistance. And, um, and we, the, the biocidin disrupts that. And so you, you end up not having to be as concerned about um, resistance to the product. Mm, nice. Uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. That's one of the pieces of research that Dr. Fresco was able to elucidate for Borrelia was the um, disruption of the efflux pump in Borrelia, and it, it reduced the killing dose of cetriaxone to one eighth of its normal killing dose uh, in, in, when you use the two in combination. So I, I thought that's in vitro, but it, I thought it was right. really fascinating. It's exciting, you know. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, and I appreciate your passion around it. So you're not thinking about then needing a motility agent. You're doing probably what we're caught, what we call in in naturopathic slash functional medicine, like a 5R protocol, you've got people on an anti-inflammatory diet, which I'm assuming, you know, if, if, you ha if, if you happen to have your diet handy and you want to share it, I'm sure people would like to take a look at it. But certainly we can all access pretty easily a standard anti-inflammatory anti diet. Um, and then you're using these products. Yes. Yep. Pretty and, simple. And then I would do, you know, treatment based on um, on the individual, I may, I may bring in, um, you know, hydrochloric acid or, okay. uh, you know, additional, like what you said, the five, of course, to the five hour, <laughs> if they need it, yes. you prescribe it. You, yeah, yep, exactly. And, and yep. yep, that's, I guess that's a really good way. I guess I've not written down my personal SIBO protocol, but yes, that's a really good description of what I do. And, and my anti-inflammatory diet is really sort of a, um, it's more of a paleo, but not with more of a focus on plant-based paleo. Okay. So they're getting some of those prebiotic foods. Yes, exactly. They're putting some attention to that. Okay. What about motility agents? Might you incorporate something? So, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I have, you know, the ones that I've used are, are um, cholagogs uh -huh. uh, and other um, sort of Nutri or um, excuse me, botanicals to help with the bitters, things that help with the flow of bile. Okay. Um, but you know, I think using the you could technically use 5-HTP or anything you know as well that that um, binds serotonin could help upregulate the binding of serotonin receptors. That's what um, a lot of functional medicine doctors will prescribe. Low dose, um, low doses of of, of um, serotonin binding or serotonin agonists. Uh, so I think it just depends. I, I haven't used those in my practice with that purpose. I've used, I use amino acid therapy for different purposes, but, um, you know, I think, no, it wasn't, it's not part of the, I guess I wouldn't consider it part of the su sustained healing or treating the underlying cause because ho hopefully if you treat the sort of the inflammatory process against the nerve, and then also this other sort of paradigm that you and I talked about, which we can talk about as well here, if you'd like that um, LPS is playing a role. If you reduce the inflammation yep. and the, the effect of the inflammation on the, on the nervous system, that, that the body will heal itself. 
Yeah, let's talk about it. I think it's really important. So I don't think you're using, you don't, you have not felt your protocol has been sufficient to cover your bases and you haven't needed a motility agent. So that's pretty cool. And yes, we were also, so we were talking about the autoimmune um, theory of Pimentel or what he's demonstrated. And then you were talking about um, LPS damaging uh, the vagus nerve. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so that's a that's a totally interesting, fascinating. I listened to a, one of the speakers in, in Hawaii, um, Kiran uh, Krishnan, and he's he's obviously very well researched, super smart guy, um, and doing a lot of research in the field as well um, in in the microbiome, of course. And really, it, what he talked about there are a couple of things that were really fascinating. One is the LPS, so lipopolysaccharides released by gram-negative bacteria. So we have the CDTB and LPS released by gram-negative bacteria. Um, LPS is inflammatory, super inflammatory. That's a medical term, <laughs> super inflammatory. Um, it causes the release of uh, tumor necrosis factor, IL-6, um, and so it increases cytokine, pro-inflammatory cytokine release, and that can travel to the dorsal vagal complex in the brain um, and affect the vagal nerve function. And then that, that vagal nerve is one of the things responsible for that. Again, that migrating motor complex, which in a fasting state should happen every 90 to 120 minutes. Um, and if it doesn't happen, then we get that, again, that stasis of stool in the gut and the potential overgrowth. So it's another mechanism for potential, um, for potential uh, SIBO or disruption again of that migrating motor complex. And, and ultimately, I mean, of course, it's really fun to know. And I think all of us are all of us as clinicians are really fascinated by the underlying cause. Uh, but the interesting thing, it comes back to, again, the suppression of those gram-negative, uh, those gram-negative bacteria uh, and helping to restore healthy flora in the gut. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and he, he also said, when I thought was really fascinating, we kind of already passed this, but I'd like to step back to it again and say that he, you know, one of the causes of SIBO, this migrating motor complex, when you have slowed emptying, then you get the backup of microorganisms from the colon into the small intestine. But what he is arguing, um, Krishnan, he being Krishnan, uh, I mean, excuse me, Kieran Krishnan, Krishnan uh, he, he said that he thinks it's coming from the mouth oftentimes. So Archaeobacter, um, a lot, we know for sure in CIFO that Candida, there's a study showing that people who brush their teeth after every meal had a dramatic decrease in uh, Candida in stool. So just the can translocation of the pathogens from the mouth to the gut. And this is what I talk to my patients about all the time. Like we're using this liquid, the biocidin liquid. It's really important that you use the liquid, that you're not doing a capsule because otherwise you miss one whole area of potential dysbiosis and treatment area. Um, and so I, I just think that's an interesting thing to, to pay attention to. A lot of these SIBO patients don't have good stomach acid levels. And so they're swallowing these microorganisms they, they live right through the stomach, gastric acid some of the time if our, if our pH is too high in the stomach. And if we don't have good pH, we don't release these bile acids and pancreatic enzymes that will also help with killing the microorganisms or establishing balance. So it becomes this speed forward cycle. Then you end up with overgrowth, you end up with elevated LPS, elevated CDTB, and that creates an issue with the migrating motor complex. And then we're kind of back to the circle, beginning of the circle again, where we're, we're not clearing those microorganisms. So you know, I think it's all fascinating. It's all fascinating. Awesome. Really, really nice job summarizing that just all of those extremely important points. So the, so, so oral dysbiosis, 
poor hygiene can continue will allow, is 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 an eco niche that can continue to repopulate the the SIBO it can continue to feed the SIBO. So oral hygiene has really good oral hygiene has to be a piece of a SIBO protocol. Otherwise, that could be the source of a refractory SIBO. Case. Exactly. That's, that's a, awesome. Per perfectly put. I think that's so interesting. So that that eco niche. I love that. But I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, use that one. I'm <laughs> but it's so. I mean, it's so true. I mean, if we if we can do all the supplements we want to, but if we then we stop taking them, but you haven't treated the oral candidiasis, or you right. you know continuing right. to. And it is where diet becomes very important as well. Like obviously, yep. people who are eating a high sugar diet. Uh, high refined carbohydrate diet, they're going to continue to have the, the growth of the of candida and other um, sugar consuming microorganisms in the mouth, and and it can perpetuate. Of course, we and yeah, but what it's what a ridiculously simple solution that you just had your patients do the liquid, and what did you have them do like a swish and then swallow in addition to good oral hygiene and changing their diet and so forth? Yes, have, and yeah. and you have you know, the biobotanical toothpaste, which actually tastes really good. I know. And it, and it is something, I mean, this is one thing that we can easily do as clinicians is just, if you have resistant patients or if you have pediatric patients, like that, that everybody's already brushing their teeth. So you, yeah. it's easy to just replace the toothpaste. And, and we know um, as a clinician that just having them brush their teeth lowers the candida. We know that candida is sensitive to biocidin. So I, I think it's a, it's kind of a, an easy, easy kind of a slam dunk way to, yeah. to help start to treat the, the microbiome, uh, even, even the gastrointestinal microbiome, just using that toothpaste. So, you know, I just want to, I want to say too, the, I was familiar with this concept with regard to H. pylori. So one can reseed their, their gut, their, the H, turn back the, the H. pylori infection on over and over again through the oral microbiome, through a dysbiotic mm -hmm. oral microbiome. But it's, it's interesting to extend that to archaea and others. And, and uh, Yeah, these. that's an area that I'm, I'm excited to learn more about because yeah. I didn't know that archaea live in the mouth. I, I know candida, porphyr, you know, porphyromonas is one that can cause um, gastrointestinal dysbiosis that, that seeds from the mouth. Yeah. Uh, candida. I, I think yeah. I said that already. So, so yeah. um, these are, but yes, I'm in the same boat as you. It's just fascinating. How it's really interesting, but it's a super easy fix. So, so we've got right. plenty, we have plenty of, of refractory SIBO patients, you know, and it would be interesting to actually see what population of those you know what subgroup is actually is is refractory because their oral microbiome hasn't been adequately addressed i'm so curious and if anybody has looked at that listening to this podcast if you could just post post us a note we would i'm sure we would both like to know yes. all right so we're kind of working on research right now too just so that you know we're working on um researching the effect of the bio the dental side in ls on the oral microbiome and we're we're also uh in the beginning process of doing SIBO study um, with a hospital here in Duluth, we'll see if it, if it comes to fruition or not, but there's, there's a lot of um, red tape. Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. That stuff. But it, I really hope we can get it going. It's a, it's a really exciting prospect. So. And the other piece too is don't forget to circle back with the details from that Southwest study too. You were going to give us the protocols for there and for, from that study and, and we'll uh, pop yes, those on our yes. show notes. It was um, really all that she did was five drops three times a day of biocidin. Oh. Wow. And the GI detox. That's all that she did. No diet changes, no other changes, just the biocidin and the huh. GI detox. So no, no, not all of, when she, after the study was done, she brought in olivirex and she saw the needle move on the methane producing bugs a lot better when the olivirex was included in the protocol. 
Um, in the first protocol, and I might get the number off, I think it was 50%, right around 50% of people had a reduction in hydrogen with just thiocidin, uh, which is, you know, approximates rifaximin at 56%, right? So it's, it's relatively um, comparable. In, and will she will she publish this? Is she writing this up for publication? It, it wasn't done in such on? a way that it could be published, but it, we do have the I do have the the data that I can get to you. Okay. All right. Yep. Whatever you can send us, if you have it in a PDF, we can link to it in our show notes. Yeah. Whatever you whatever you can um, afford to give us, we'll we'll populate or links to to your site. Whatever works, we can put on the show notes. So, okay. any kind of any any parting words on. Um, you know, using the protocol and, you know, are you starting, well, I guess a question that folks would have, the, the whole probiotic question, are you using the biobotanical probiotic concurrently with your intervention or do you wait for a while or what, how are you doing that? No, I, I, um, I, it's, it's useful to use alongside because, so there's a study about, that came out about a year ago, year and a half now, I guess, that showed that uh, for for people on antibiotics, that the the fastest return to innate flora was with fecal transplant, or with the use of a soil based organism. That tr more the more traditional sort of Lactobacillus bifidobacterium, that those actually slowed the return to innate flora. Um, and so using the soil based organism because we have a line of antimicrobials makes more sense from our from our perspective. Um, and so we're using, you can use it alongside the biocidin, um, you know, in the same protocol. Uh, with that, we, we actually have been able to show um, that the, the um, proflora, which is our, our probiotic, doesn't, doesn't die from the use of, from, from biocidin, that the two can be taken at the same time. We don't have that same information on the olivirex. So if you're including olivirex, which it's most important to include the olivirex when you have the methane producing microorganisms, in, in um, SIBO. I think that, I, I mean, I just use it all the time with complex GI patients because for the longest time I felt like I was wasting my patient's time. They, they go on, they go on biocidin and feel better, but not resolved. And then if I bring in the olivirex so often it would get them over the hump that I ended up feeling like I was wasting time by not in including it in the, in the initial protocol. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I use both of them together and then I just dose the proflora away from, away from that. Okay. Uh, and then after you're done with any kind of antimicrobial, it would be useful, uh, in theory, based on the other research, to take to take proflora, the soil-based organisms, for for um, some time afterwards to help reset. I'd, I I would like to see that study that you just pointed out that oh. showed soil-based is, is more effective than our traditional lacto and bifido. Um, so if you can do that, I'm sure I, folks yeah, for sure will, I can get that to you. Okay, and then we'll post it on our show notes, folks. Um, and if any in-house stuff that you've got. That, that we can share. I'd love to have it. So, um, Dr. Strand, it was lovely to be able to chat with you today. And, and I know that folks are going to find this information really useful. And as always, everybody, post your comments. Let us know what you're doing in practice. And, um, you know, just anything else you want to leave us with today, Jocelyn? Oh, well, it's really been fun to talk with you. It's so much fun to talk to other um, practitioners who are really excited about understanding all of these underlying causes. And, the deeper yeah. physiology. I mean, a GI physiology is so complex and, and we're still, we're obviously still learning a lot about it. And I, and I have lots more to learn as well, but um, it's been really fun. And I, and I hope useful um, yep. to, to sort of share the download of information that I've been lucky enough to, to glean from other practitioners and then my, my own practice. And, oh, can I leave you with a case study? Yeah, you can. Sure. 
Okay, so a year ago in December, I had a 23-year-old woman come into my practice and she had been uh, vomiting every day and pretty much all day, every day, uh, multiple times for, for three months when I met her. Um, and she had gone to see her general practitioner who prescribed 40 milligrams of a PPI uh, and then he referred her to a, a GI doc who saw her and prescribed another 40 milligrams. So she's on 80 milligrams a day of a PPI with no um, symptomatic improvement and no testing, mm. didn't run any testing. Um, so I met her, she sat down on my couch in my office and started crying. She couldn't even speak at first. She was, and she was on family um, short-term family medical leave at that point because uh, she couldn't she couldn't work anymore, and so we talked and she's she didn't have a whole lot of money so instead of doing and and she was so miserable that I didn't want to wait to do testing right. to treat so we um, we just did the uh, biocidin and it's it's all that she could swing at the time was just uh, one bottle of biocidin. So I started her on five drops twice a day. So when, when someone's as miserable as she was, I, I worry less about die-off reaction. And I just go straight, you know, I work as quickly as I can up to the max dosing in order to get relief more quickly. Um, so five drops twice a day. And I talked to her a week later and she was improved but not resolved. So we went then to 15 drops twice a day. And I didn't hear back from her. And for months, I didn't hear back from her. And I saw her in my shop and I said, hey, how's it going? And she said, oh, good. I used that one bottle and it went away. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, okay. That, that, first of all, it's amazing, right? But secondly, yeah. as a clinician, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> don't, don't stop taking it. Uh, you know, because I, I think, well, you need it longer term. Obviously, she didn't, she didn't need it longer term and she stayed resolved. And, I, and at that time, I saw her. I scheduled a phone conversation to, to get the full intake on her on her recovery because it was so, uh, and it's, of course, it's not always that way, but when you see the product working in that way, that's why I have the faith to use it as a diagnostic tool. Um, right. because it's been, I've seen that repeatedly. Um, and it's, it, there are some certain conditions that become so straightforward that they don't even register as difficult to treat anymore. Does that make sense? So it, it that's the sort of, that's why I, I have gone to work for this company because I really want other clinicians to have th these experiences that I've had using the, the product line. So that's my, my final pitch, but mostly because I, I always say that at my, when I'm speaking is that if there, if there's one product line, I wish I'd learned about in medical school, this would be right. that I didn't, this would have, this would have been it. So, um, so I hope that you, you all have the same experience. And if you have um, questions, you can also reach out to us. We have a great clinical support team. If you have complex patients that you want, um, if you need support with, with either protocols or you're having difficulty treating, there may be some way that we can assist um, in, in helping. We have some um, really practiced clinicians on our, on our clinical team that can help a lot with, um, with difficult to treat cases that, and, and sometimes just um, having one pearl from, one of them is Karen Hubert, who's our VP. She's just been in the field on the front lines for so long. She, man, that woman... <laughs> She's she has good. So much knowledge. Yeah. So yeah, we, we, we have a great team. So let us know if you need support. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Dr. Fitzgerald. It's been really fun. Yeah, likewise. All right. Well, thanks for joining New Frontiers today. And um, we'll be sure to go to the show notes and access all the amazing content from Biobotanicals. Thanks so much, Dr. Strand. Thank you.